Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. A paradox that underlies humanity's history is that the eras of greatest creativity and discovery are also the most dangerous. The nearly eight decades since the end of World War II are unparalleled in advances of knowledge and productivity, comparable to the entirety of the previous 10 millennia, and human culture has consequently structured technologies that are disintegrating civilization, even as civilized life owes its existence to them. Seers of governments and industry patronize the public with visions of increasing affluence and certain virtually painless technological solutions to deadly problems caused by technology. The flimsy assumption is that the haves will be able to endlessly amuse themselves to death. A persistent irony that the world in which at least half its human population is threatened with death every day because it has scarcely enough with which to survive is that the portion which has much more than it knows what to do with is strangling on the effluence of its affluence. Science and its handmaiden technology modernize civilization by routinely ripping away its fabric without making much of an effort to repair it in a kaleidoscopic surge into an incomprehensible future. This is the point at which history is declared dead without significant meaning except as memory and perhaps latent nostalgia because it is claimed to no longer have any bearing or effect on present or future. The race is to the swift who disregard consequences. The present is patently obsolete as it careens into the future. Although progress is generally measured through technical achievement, it should at least be as important to concentrate on the contradictory evolution of political liberty and the slow development of a world civilization. Karl Marx anticipated such a civilization in the 19th century. The two world wars of the 20th century made the concept impossible to resist. The great contradiction lies with the rights and liberties of individuals and minority populations and with former colonies of disintegrated empires that reassert their claims as separate and independent peoples while genociding themselves with internal feuds and virulent ethnic cleansing. Everything points to human rights and the reversion to the age-old struggle of rich against poor. Whatever masks or complexities surround ideologies, their design is to either protect privilege and power or to establish and extend rights and liberties to the powerless. Capitalism and democracy are not synonymous. During the half-century Cold War with Soviet Russia, they were equated with each other. But with the dissolution of Marxist communism, 
the old antipathy between power at the top and the struggle for freedom at the bottom has accelerated in Yankee Doodle, USA. The top capitalists do not believe in equality or democracy. They believe in predatory capitalism and in their own sovereign right for power over the rest of the people. They publicly proclaim capitalism coexistent with democracy to mollify the masses, and elections are held, but their wealth handpicks and generally elects their chosen candidates. The USA is always at war with itself. It is a fierce battleground of diversity and disparity. Political equity and personal liberty have not been easily attainable for most Americans, if at all. Nor has the creed of justice for all, anything but a bloody war between those who would extend democracy and those who would severely limit it. The nation's founders insisted that these rights and liberties, so enshrined in theory, would be fought for here in the USA. But anyone who smugly assumes that the United States and its citizens are exclusively the seeds of liberty and justice for the rest of the world is wrongheaded in a most sublime degree. The USA is not a triumphant example of the historical struggle for human emancipation, but instead a perpetual work in process. Of necessity, the people of this country must always be in philosophical and dialectic revolution and civil war about the very fundaments of democracy, which is most certainly invariably risky. Yet, without such rigorous clamor, it will stagnate and be suppressed. The current political climate in the United States is one of incendiary revision, of savage dissent into public insolence and intolerance, which are generally present, but not accorded the respect or power of recent years. Serious, nearly morbid attention is paid to pathological pieties and virulent simplicities of religious zealots, racial supremacists, and far-right ideologues who act at the extreme edge of national anxieties and reduce public dialogue to a medieval level while grossly manipulating the democratic process to ultimately subvert and eradicate it. The essentially hard-right neo-federalists who have made an intolerable grab for power and ordination of a country club apartheid that severely erodes much of the basic fiber of democracy are relentless in their attempts to subvert the racked remnants of democratic governance and replace it with a grim and malignant version of monopolistic autocracy. The USA's presumption of world power, its self-declared manifest destiny, the root of the current Trumpian MAGA psychosis, has produced a pyrrhic paradox of global supremacy and internal domestic deterioration. Although military power has been the matrix of America's ascendancy, it has been at the expense of internal priorities that act as its cultural glue. 
the military-industrial mafia of interlocking corporations and the Pentagon has created a black hole into which everything is eventually drawn and disappears, such as the nation's resources, wealth, and creed of liberty and justice for all. Nuclear power, the fortress of nationalism, has rendered it obsolete. Nationalism, capitalism, democracy, socialism, and communism are no more than parts of a process of human evolution that is always devolving into something else. Ideals, which are usually expressions of concern that people have about the welfare of human continuity, erode into ideologies that separate them as enemies. Ideologies do not translate well into realities. Political rights or liberties, hard won by one generation, are usually eroded by successors who take them for granted without realizing how necessary and rare they are. The history of an age is not about solutions to problems, but of the struggle between numerous possible alternatives and of the manner in which seekers for certain solutions are deflected by others working for other solutions. Capitalism, communism, fascism, any and all isms are constantly forming and reforming, overlapping and separating, and inherent with all of them are the human factors of power, avarice, violence, and asininity. The farther in time a form of rule or ideology moves from its progenitors, the less recognizable its foundations. No system is foolproof, and like every other organism, each moves toward decay. Communism and socialism, the failed creeds of the last century millennium, were rooted in community and society, however ruthless their degeneration. Not so capitalism, a word and concept as cold and brittle as a coin. The raw excesses of corporate capitalism in its quest to dominate world trade, commerce, and all exploitable resources since the end of the Cold War and change of millennia are under siege by a rising turbulence caused by intense pressure from below the bottom of the resources trickle-down, which might very well unite the majority of overcrowded humanity in the face of global climate collapse. There are plagues, and there are plagues. One is of rampant disease. Another is of prejudice and greed. Humanity currently exists among both forms. Human beings cannot escape history is the Marxian idea, and it would be a grotesque irony that humanity might perish because of its inability to resolve conflicts from its earliest history, hopelessly mired in the irredeemable past and self-destructing its future as a result. Yet, every generation makes its own history. Freedom and equality, like love, begin at home. And that was something I wrote. And now, 
by Joanne Rideout, whose renown is in all the seven seas for her KMUN ship report. Turning toward the light. And she wrote this for KMUN publication, The Current. I'm writing this column on the winter solstice, December 21st, thinking about the year that has passed and the year ahead, as many of us probably are. In the nautical realm, sailors on ships often work through the holidays, and they count the days until they can go home again, often after months at sea. They are familiar with the idea of unfamiliar territory and accept it as part of their lives. On a ship, it's often a matter of being away from everything comfortable for the sake of work until the unfamiliar, the ship, can become as well known to the crew as what they've known all their lives. For those of us on land or sea these days, the old world we used to know can seem distant and the new one uncomfortably familiar. So perhaps sailors can offer us a valuable point of view. Mariners learn early on in their line of work to hunker down and do what needs to be done while looking forward to better times. They pragmatically adjust to what is. That is kind of the position we are all in right now. I probably do not need to point out that this is also the position we've been in for some time. What will 2023 bring? A renewed pandemic? More political upheaval? Will we finally be able to resume what we once thought of as normal life, even though that now may seem like a distant dream? Like a sailor in a storm at sea, it may be time to once again assess the situation, adjust, perhaps slow down, and make progress as we can. Some days will be smooth sailing and lots of distance covered, and other days we may be bogged down in temporary squalls. But right now, at the end of our third pandemic year, the essential meaning of the solstice that we need to hear is that it signifies turning toward the light. The days are now slowly getting longer again, and soon it will be spring. I think it will be helpful in the coming days to keep this in mind. I was reminded of this hopeful concept on Solstice Day when I was listening to KMUN to the Wednesday morning folk show hosted by my husband, Jerry Middow. Jerry played a song I had forgotten about, but it's one I love. It's called Turning Toward the Morning, written and performed by Gordon Bach. This is the chorus. Oh, my Joni, don't you know that the stars are swinging slow and the seas are rolling easy as they did so long ago. If I had a thing to give you, I would tell you one more time that the world is always turning toward the morning. It's a nautical metaphor describing a vessel swinging gently at anchor at night in a calm harbor, a state of peace dearly to be hoped for and perhaps within our grasp. Like the world, 
we can turn toward morning and the light and resolve to simply endure. That right now may be enough. And that was Turning Toward the Light by Joanne Rideout. Listeners might already have read this in the most recent KMUN Current. I recite it now because it is simply a fine piece of writing. Joanne has worn nearly every hat at KMUN that anyone can. In this 40th anniversary year for KMUN, she rates among the microphone immortals. And now, a poem. The Morning After the End of the World by J.N. Nielsen. The world did not end at the stroke of midnight. Clocks kept their time. Computers did not crash. Generators continued to spin in their bearings. Transmission lines humming and crackling as before. The infrastructure of industrialized civilization intact. The four horses are in their stable yet, munching on grain and hay, awaiting their apocalyptic riders, war, disease, famine, and death, to saddle up for an excursion. While not quite retired, the four horsemen have not loosed their full fury upon the world, riding out to wreak havoc and mayhem, preferring occasional sorties, diversions of destruction, to wholesale slaughter and wanton ruination. War, proud upon his steed, decorated with medals and ribbons, worshipped by the devotees of Mars, cuts a stylish figure in his uniform, spattered with blood and gore. Famine, wan and shrunken figure, rides a starving nag, ribcage visible through the sagging skin, horse and rider emaciated, they plod along their way. Disease, discolored and deformed, clutches a hood about his head to hide the marks on his face. Following war and famine, he seizes the stragglers that remain. Death, celebrated in many a triumph, undisputed master of the horsemen, whether riding ahead or bringing up the rear, glories in his power over young and old, rich and poor, happy and sad, well and ill. The grim quartet astride their steeds, with hooves clattering across the sky, bearing down upon the beleaguered people, followed by thunder and lightning, enact a convincing theater of doom. This dramatic, sublime twilight of the gods, in which the victim might be persuaded to participate as a player in a greater, more noble destiny, relief from the mundane cares of life, seems a call to higher sacrifice, seductively appealing. Ask not the date of doomsday. It is not the horsemen of the apocalypse that should inspire us with fear. Today and every day is doomsday, today no less than tomorrow or yesterday. The sinister horsemen of peacetime ride silently among us today and every day, scarcely noticed but for the need to avert our eyes. Horsemen not of the traumatic but of the chronic poverty, illiteracy, malnutrition, and despair. 
Such ills are the fuels of civil strife, the despondency, desperation, and unrest of indecisive low-intensity conflict, the car bomb, the assassination, and the ambush, hostages, juntas, surveillance, and military advisors. Not the clear sound of hoofbeats approaching, but the muffled steps of infiltrators in the night are heard in the dark world of covert operations. The mercenary, the assassin, the gunrunner, the profiteer, the spook, and the double agent. But no enthusiast for doom has ever been dissuaded from his belief in the coming end of the world. By the mere failure of the world to end abruptly, no evidence can contradict a faith in the end of days. No fact can intervene where certainty is in play. When the black helicopters do not appear, hovering menacingly over the homes of tax protesters to dispossess them of their freehold, fell messengers of global conspiracy abducting the inhabitants and disappearing. When the rioting in the streets of cities is but the drunken enthusiasm of revelers, not angry mobs calling for revolution and the lynching of politicians to be shot one by one or hung from lampposts. When the militants and the survivalists, the posse comitatus and the clan fail to rally the masses to their cause, left with unfulfilled fantasies of race war, nuclear annihilation, and vigilante justice. When the social order does not descend into barbarism, swept away like an illusion, a surreal moment in history, which may or may not have already happened, fragile civilization doomed to collapse upon itself, expiring with the century that nearly spelled its doom. When the UFOs do not land upon a mountaintop to take into a safe and secure womb the true believers who waited faithfully in this desolate place, certain that salvation would descend from the skies and land upon this very spot. When the heists of the order fail to inspire a revolution, or the rampages of Jonesboro, Springfield, and Columbine fail to stoke the rage of the dispossessed, and bombers fail to ignite the powder keg of simmering resentment after Waco, Texas, Ruby Ridge, Idaho, and Oklahoma City, when no members of Delta Force repel from the roofs and smash through windows into living rooms in a government-sanctioned home invasion, targeting the vocal critics of national policy and writers of crank letters to the editor, when no mysterious agents of government, ATF, FBI, CIA, NSA, NATO, UN, or malevolent NGOs, the Masons, the New World Order, Rand Corporation, the Trilateral Commission, come in the night to seize the papers and effects of patriots. When Armageddon fails to arrive as scheduled, like a locomotive careening out of control, shaking itself to pieces as it jolts and sparks down fateful rails on a one-way journey to its inevitable rendezvous with destiny. When the dire warnings of catastrophe, the shrill cry unheeded, the masses unprepared, the atmosphere tense and pregnant with crisis, issued in nothing more than an unexpected quietude, a crisis unfulfilled, a punctual anticlimax. When the sun rose once again upon a new day, 
a new year, a new century, a new millennium, blazing brightly, boldly, and coolly in the winter sky. The morning after the end of the world was a morning like and unlike any other. No Cinderella's we, returning to a pumpkin rather than a carriage. The carriage was there still after midnight, and still at dawn it waited for us in the early light. With a certain melancholy, we return, hesitating, to mundane lives after the lure of danger and excitement fades. Suburban surrealism engineers a numbing sameness, repetitions of winding drives and cul-de-sacs, one home indistinguishable from another, the same cars parked in the same driveways. Inspired by desperately sought distraction, we shall make our own apocalypse. We shall forge our own Armageddon, beating our plowshares into swords for lack of the genuine article. Doomsday is not one but many, Harper's Ferry and Andersonville, Gallipoli and the Somme, Mountain Meadow and Donner Pass, Auschwitz and Dachau, Sand Creek and Little Bighorn, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, names that resonate, that ring in our ears. How much easier it is to face doomsday, Armageddon, Gotter Damerung, Giga and Tamaki, than to face the doom day in and day out. The grinding circumstances, the dismal routine, an implacable time clock begrudging every passing minute. The sweet swan song of glory and destiny calls to us like the sirens to Odessa, whispering in our ears the seductive sounds of fate, that is, whispering sweet nothings, a gentle nihilism to lull the unwary into sleep and oblivion. We dream the elusive, ineluctable dream, distracting ourselves with fantasies of doomsday, drawn in by the drama and excitement, the ever-present doom surrounding us, apparently unable to slake our thirst for horror. We wait for a just anarchy, come to save the pure in heart, a clean sweep, a clean slate, a new world. Surely the day of judgment is upon us. Surely the wrath of God's shall fall heavily upon the wicked. Surely the unrepentant shall be held to answer for their crimes. Certain of justice delayed, that it will not be denied. We wait, choosing to wait rather than to act, waiting for the end of our days, waiting for a sign, waiting as the hours drag, the days pass, the years fade, and life slips away waiting until waiting no longer has any meaning. We forget why we have suspended our lives, waiting only in order to wait, waiting, the wait having become an end in itself, waiting until doomsday, which has at length, at last, long last, arrived. And that was the Morning After the End of the World by J.N. Nielsen, who is a Portland poet. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan hauser Schalk is engineer for this program. A thought about the future, which has to do with young persons, about their undeveloped minds and bodies flowing forward, so often polluted by noxious culture in which they grow, so often 
mentally twisted and malformed, wondering how many might grok just enough to not only survive, but assist the species in its tardy awakening to the massive despoilation of its home planet, the paradox of willful decimation of its own nest, and ever-dimming Polaris, our North Star, recedes into its expanding universe wherever it is expanding into, hopefully not sinking into black holes. And my apologies for the glitches in last week's program. The old year seemed to go out tremulously, sort of like a runner tripping over a hurdle or a singer with hip cups. Happy hippity-hop yin and yang yo-yo year of the bunny. <laughs>